Let's get into the Word of God today. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you've got your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We've been on a series of 1 Corinthians and the working title has been Redefining Radical. And um, the last time I was up here, we looked at chapter 7. And chapter 7 was a pretty full-on piece of passage to look at. There's a lot of stuff we can look at for, for marriage and for married couples and, and that side of things. But if you were in here going, gee, that didn't apply to me, that's fine. There were other sweeping ideas sort of coming out of that chapter as well. Um, there was the challenge to get past the if-onlys uh, that can plague our life. If only my life was different. If only this was the case. If only, uh, you know, so all these different things. And, and, um, and Paul writes to look for ways of being fruitful and productive for the kingdom in the place we find ourselves now. There's an old proverb saying, bloom wherever you're planted. And uh, that can kind of be the deal here at the moment. There was also a challenge to live now with at least one eye on eternity. You know, if we lose sight of that, we can uh, kind of just kind of dilute our eternal resolve and end up getting swept up in so many temporal things. And as a result, it's like what is to come gets put on the back burner. So the principle is to live now with an eye on how eternity is going to be as well. I can also take the, the word, the, the, the sexual references and, and words about that stuff is now pretty much not going to be part of the vocabulary. Paul has addressed it extensively and now we're moving on to other things. He kind of needed to. Corinth, Corinth was a pretty full-on place and, uh, and they had some really deep-seated issues in that particular regard, as does the modern world. And we're learning that the hard way at the moment, aren't we? And uh, so it's, it's appropriate to cover that sort of ground and reaffirm how we should be in that. Uh, but now we're going to move to another way that the Corinthians are struggling to live out pagan values in a, in a, sorry, kingdom values in a pagan world. And uh, it's a really tough one. Before we get to the passage, put your hand up if you've been to Phuket for a, for a holiday. Yeah, I the, the yeah, some are smiling. They're going, oh, yeah, I've been there. All right. So, all right, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up if you've been to, to Phuket. All right. I've been there twice. 2010 was the first time I went. And twice is enough. Uh, there's other places in the world to visit. But it is a nice place. It's, it's good for a, a bit of a holiday break. Um, who who uh, went to this thing? A theme park is the best way I can describe it. Fantasy. Who went to that? Didn't go to that. Oh, man. Okay, well, that, it's, look, it's, it's, it, it's not everyone's thing. For me, I enjoyed it. <laughs> this is one of the parts of the fantasy setting. It's a something for everyone sort of idea. It culminates, it takes you on this journey. You come in through, like you just look at it and go, the carbon footprint of this thing is ridiculous. All right, you can just see black balloons just flying. <laughs> so much electricity being burnt here, you know. Um, but the, um, you walk in and, and it's heavily lit up and, and it's, it's this crazy entrance and, and, and a sideshow where you can do the amusement show type thing. There's a zoo so you can, like with white tigers and all this other stuff. You know, and, and, and you've got all these different things and, and the, the culmination of the whole journey is to enter through the elephant archway there and go into, that is, a, that is actually an a, a auditorium that you walk into there. It uh, holds a few thousand people 
and there's a massive stage show with like 17 elephants on stage at once. All right, so it's, it's a monster presentation. So you've got the big theatre hall there and it's sensory overload as you take it all in. It also happens to be the place where the Buddhism flag is flown very strongly and the plot of the production is based on ancient Buddhist mythology. And uh, there's even an interesting take on creation and even the flood and, you know, a destruction and regeneration type thing uh, told in the Buddhist story as well uh, throughout this production. Part of the entry also involves, to my delight, a very large buffet meal. (laughs) And that is the entrance to the buffet hall. Right, massive statue of Buddha on the way out in, and uh, and you've got all this. It's just really extravagantly presented sort of stuff. You're just taking it all in, going, "Wow, the food is awesome." And um, I went there in 2010, and as I walked into that venue, I had a whole new appreciation. And the first thing that came to my mind as I walked in was, "Wow, look at the production." Two, 1 Corinthians 8 kind of rings true now. I've almost got this way to apply this today. Let me, let me reflect on this a bit. This, kind of, this passage we're about to read now came to mind in a heavily way, so in a big way. So uh, I'll get out of there for a moment. We'll get another photo of it just later on. But for now, we're just going to get into 1 Corinthians and read the chapter, chapter 8, which is a pretty short chapter. Now about food, sacrifice to idols... We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then nothing about eating food so then about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things come and and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a God. And since their conscience is weak... It is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, the the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you, with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. Wow. Paul is still wearing a pastor's hat here. To understand this chapter, we know that he is answering another question from the Corinthian church. 
and he is engaging with their conclusions that they themselves have reached. In ancient Corinth, when you went to the farmer's market to grab your local produce and your favourite cut of meat, like that beautiful piece right there, I'd have to trim it before I put it on, but it's nice. You did so knowing that it had been subject to some distinctly pagan processes before it got there, or the chances were that that was the case. It most likely had been taken to a pagan shrine or temple first and the animal would have been sacrificed to the owner's deity of choice in that setting. It would have been butchered on site and a portion of the beast was used in a feast in that pagan setting. Look at that rhyming. The people eating it would in one way or symbolically be ingesting or taking in the deity as they consume the sacrificed meat. There'd be lots of wine and hopefully a bit of a salad bar, I don't know. And eventually you'd be full of food, you'd be loaded with wine, your inhibitions have been reduced and then you'd be invited to partake in the darker parts of worship where temple prostitutes would be waiting for that process. And even if you were not an inherent, an inherent of that particular religion, you could go to that temple at that time and get in on the meat as well. You know, if you got home after work and you go, gone, gee, the RSL's closed, I can't really get a steak there. This is sort of what you would do. This is where you would go. So the eating halls of the pagan deities were like the eat-outs in one, one, in one sense in the city. And uh, this is the fantasy dining hall on screen right now. When you walk into that UBIT entrance, that's what you encounter. That is a very oversized, probably overemphasized expression of perhaps what the temple feast may have looked like. After all that process, there would be meat left and that would go to market. So unless you had your own farm, you could pretty much guarantee or it would be very high odds that any protein you bought at the local market would have gone through a pagan process like that. With all that in mind, there was a big conundrum for the Corinthian believers. We know what's taken place for all that. So can a Christian, can a person pursuing the kingdom way eat meat if it's gone through that process? The Corinthians have clearly offered some thoughts on the topic as they write to Paul about it. And these are again shown in talking marks in this passage. We all possess knowledge, is one of them. An idol is nothing at all in the world, is another. And there is no God but one, is the final line of their thinking. And we see that Paul gets to speak into those three things as he uh, writes here. First statement, we all possess knowledge. This suggests that they could do what they wanted in this area because they'd worked all this stuff out that they had rationalised it. That, that, that sort of it suggests that the Corinthians have, have really deeply worked this out and have come to a point of deep-seated conviction and gone, well, we know, we've worked this all out, we know what, where it's at, we'll be fine, we can just go ahead and do what we want. And if these guys have been believers for years, 
with a track record of love and solid truth and all those things in balance, then I reckon Paul would be affirming this a lot more strongly than he does. But we need to remember that this is still only about a four-year-old congregation. And the first few chapters of this, of this letter have indicated that these guys are still a bit too worldly in the wisdom that they've been embracing. So when they say we all possess knowledge, there may be a bit of a hint of arrogance in that. We know this stuff, we're fine, we've worked it out. And Paul cautions them about the way they apply so-called knowledge in this instance. When you know in the way that I think you know, which is a very humanistic, still based on some pagan ideas sort of knowledge, when you're using your knowledge that is based more of a worldly perspective than a godly perspective, and then trying to bring that to the table of God, that sort of knowledge will puff you up. Knowledge puffs up. It's not the knowledge of God that puffs up. It's not the wisdom of God that puffs up. It's worldly knowledge. It inflates ego. It fosters pride. It elevates people over others. It places more dependence on ourselves rather than a dependence on God. And it actually pushes out God who is the one true source of the wisdom that all believers need in favour of our own personal rationalisations. And if we follow what Paul says here, this knowledge, particularly the way they were expressing it, would come at the expense of love. And that's going to be shown shortly to be the superior trait for any believer to be displaying. It is the ultimate expression of what a believer should be showing. Knowledge, in a worldly sense, builds ego. But love builds people. Then we have a second statement. An idol is nothing at all in the world. Very true. If you're a fan like I am of the Green Ginger Restaurant in town, I think that's what it's called, the one in the, in the main street, the, Buddha, the, uh, the, the Thai restaurant. Did I get it right? Wild ginger. Green, yeah, green curry is what I eat. <laughs> you go in there, you sit down, and they always put me and Jen at the table where the big picture of Buddha is. <laughs> you go and pay your meal, and there's a gigantic head of Buddha on the, st- on the counter there. Those things from a Christian viewpoint are powerless, lifeless chunks of stone, wood, metal and and fabric and that. But they also have no business being ornaments in a Christian home either. The God of Israel would not have this in his people. In fact, he punished people pretty strongly for that. Paul will make it clear later that the Corinthians would not have this either. And even though it's nothing at all in the world, why shouldn't they be in their home? Because although it's a lifeless item, 
it actually does represent something that captures the superstitious part of us. I've known Christians who still might keep trinkets like these things for good luck. I've encountered Christians who get too aggressive or defensive when these things, when discussion around these things come up as well. They might well be dead items, but they also represent something spiritually sinister as well. The third statement was true. And the Jewish Paul would affirm this for the rooftops. For this was a statement of daily devotion for a committed Jew. Our God, the Lord, is one. But there's also the possible line of thought among the ex-pagan Corinthians that actually sometimes echoes how the world thinks today. No God but one may also suggest that any God being worshipped was essentially the same person. Ah, It all ends up there anyway. It all turns out to be the same person, right? All roads end up at the same destination. It's all the same God, isn't it? You call it that, you know, you call it tomato, I say tomato. You call it Buddha, I call it God, I call it Allah. We know that some in this church here were still hanging out in places of ill repute, religious or otherwise. We know later that Paul is going to write against idolatry. And we have an immediate problem at hand where people are sticking pretty close to these temple uh, shrines for food. There may well be a problem here if all roads lead to God being part of the theological thinking of the church here in some instances. I know this because in modern churches, I've met Christians who will make the same case today. There are Christians who kind of go, well, you worship your way, I'll worship my way, and it's like this universalist thing comes up. It's all going to get to the same destination at the end. You'll be fine. Just be a good person. But Paul makes a pretty strong response to all this. He said, this world has attributed the title of God and Lord to many things. The ruling political power of the day was called Lord. Caesar had his own cult and annual worship was going on. And there was an understanding that his deity coexisted with the others. And you would make an annual pilgrimage to say that Caesar is Lord. The same word used to describe Jesus. And you've got, you got many gods, you've got many lords. But Paul calls the Christians of Corinth to completely reject all that in favour of serving one true God, which all these other deities and all these other lords have nothing to do with. They are not the same and our God and our Lord stands alone. The other paths do not lead to him. And part of that one God deal is that there is one Lord who is Christ. Caesar would not get his due through the church. Massive risk for the Corinthian believers. This was a radical call to following one way alone.
So after working through all this, Paul is dealing to a degree with something that's a peripheral issue. And he admits that a believer is not defiled because they partake of meat which was supplied in that fashion. You know, what they ate didn't make them better or worse Christians. And in that setting, if you could, like I did in Phuket, eat in a place that enshrined a deity and not get swept up in the allure of it all, and where you could be sure of your own position before God, where you could be assured of the powerlessness and even the foolishness of all the imagery and statues around you, then eat with your conscience being clear was the solution that Paul found here. This principle has crossover appeal today. Can you eat at a pub and have a bevy or two without getting drunk? Definitely without getting drunk. How many Christians do I know get a bit too tipsy? I've got to watch that. Be free. If you can eat Thai food without placing food or red cordial or coins or whatever at the Buddha statue, then eat. Enjoy the food. The green curry is nice. The big thing that Facebook tells me, Facebook is the, this cauldron of just weird opinions. <laughs> Apparently one of the biggest deals on the planet right now is the fact that some of our food may be halal. Why? Because we want to have an export market and we have Indonesia on our doorstep. It kind of helps if our food's halal for that market. One dairy company lost its contract with Emirates because it had pressure from the local small market not, go, not to go down the halal route and they, they made life hard for them. And there's repeated calls all over the place to boycott companies that bow down to the growing Islamic plague in Western society. In Wangaratta, two men forced their way into the school chaplaincy committee to attend one meeting and then they disappeared again. And they did that so they could block the sale of fundraising Cadbury chocolates because it was a halal product. In their words, because it was funding terrorism. Today, I feel completely free to eat meat in Australia from any source. I don't care if an imam is blessed or not because we have good food handling skills, simple as it doesn't matter that someone somewhere has given a tick of approval in the name of a religion that in the scheme of things is powerless as any other pagan deity. I'm going to freely eat my Cadbury chocolates on my holiday break. And I'm going to enjoy my Vegemite on toast, even if craft is halal. And I'm going to do these all these things in the spirit of what Paul writes in this passage. And I believe we're all free to be that way. Halal or not, kosher or not, blessed or offered to a deity or not. Spiritually, I'm neither better nor worse for what I consume. So I can safely and in all good conscience participate in those things. I can. 
except when I can't. If you've got kids in Kids Kingdom, take note of this for a minute because you've got to interact with your kids on this later. I'm not giving all the answers. They've got to fill this in for you. I used to do work in high school programs. I've worked with several thousand students in the schoolyard, in classrooms and with teachers. In our classrooms, we set up a group deal using the five fingers on my left hand. Best way to remember it. The thumbs up represented a rule. Obviously, everyone's got to encourage everybody. All right. Then there was other rules regarding these fingers. And then we always got to the end part. And the kids always remembered this one because I'd tell it this way. We had this, whenever I got to the little finger, the rule for the little finger was this. We will look out for the little guy. They're looking at me funny. And they're all laughing at the littlest kid in their room. <laughs> then I would point out that this wonderful, good-looking, 116 kilos, 6 foot 1 brute in front of them would at times during the program be the little guy. Anytime someone will be vulnerable whether it's a story I was telling or an activity someone was scared about doing, that would be their status. They would be the little guy. And the group deal was that we would all take care of the little guy in that moment. In the second half of this chapter, Paul highlights our freedoms as believers. In the first half, sorry. And there's many ways that we can apply that as I've already sort of looked at some different options. But the second half of this chapter makes that freedom pointedly conditional. This freedom, these rights, come with a very clear responsibility to look out for the little guy. Paul tells us here that there are people in our congregations who are vulnerable and cannot deal with the freedom that we sometimes have in the same way as a seasoned believer might. There are those who get really legalistic about it and want to impose their restrictive way on others. That's not weakness. That's not what this talks about. This is speaking specifically of those who have not developed their faith and their consciences to the place where they have a balanced view of freedom and restraint. They're still working out how to hear the Spirit in their day-to-day lives. They're still trying to sort out how Christian repentance and transformation is to look in their lives. In the case of Corinth, many had come from those pagan backgrounds They had eaten at those feasts. They'd gotten full of grog and gone down the dark path of worship. (laughs) And serving Jesus means cutting all ties with that life so that they can know Jesus better. And people coming from all these sorts of walks of faith trying to sort out what it now means to follow Jesus, 
those people become the little guys. In a modern application, recovering alcoholics. People who have dealt with substances of different kinds in their life. They may be offended or might not be able to reconcile me having a beer or a wine with a meal. I have to respect that. Some from Eastern religious backgrounds might want to steer clear of anything to do with those religious backgrounds. They might find it hard to reconcile our lack of concern with those things. Serving halal food might offend the conscience of some. In a move that, frankly, I thought was too gracious at the time, that chaplaincy committee pulled off the sale of those chocolates for a month. So the committee could actually search their con- could actually search their consciences and search the- do their own research and come back with their own conclusions. It's the responsibility of the stronger, more mature believer to meet the weaker ones where they are at in their faith walk. This is because the stronger are supposed to have worked this out. That they have properly formed convictions on the matters rather than an attitude that says, I'll just do what I want. This is because the stronger have a knowledge base that comes from God, not man. As a result, their behavior and attitude does not come from a position of pride, but from love. The stronger ones have a call to teach the weaker ones, to help them form their convictions, to help them navigate the way of Christ in a crazy world, to show them what holiness can look like and what freedom in Christ also looks like. This is because the stronger ones can be restrained as they need to be in order for a newbie or a learner or a weaker believer to find their way using their Christian example to get them over the line. The response to Paul's writing from the stronger believer was not to rub the freedom they had in the face of the weak. Instead, it was to meet the weak where they were at. In fact, Paul calls it a sinful act against the body of Christ a destroyer of people and a sin against Christ himself if we can't do this. That's massive responsibility there, church. This is a big, radical call for the church. Paul then asks a radical question of ourselves in that last verse. He makes a statement about his own position but it forces us to ask something about ourselves. As new people are beginning to join us, not just from other churches but coming into fresh faith in Christ, this question is one that pretty much demands an answer around about now. Will I answer the call to look out for the little guy. Will I answer the call to look out for the little guy?
If I'm strong, will I help the weak? For Paul, this appears to be a no-brainer. If I have to, I'll go completely vegan if it helps another believer get over the line. That's commitment right there. I'm not sure how I'd go with that one. (laughs) Please don't be offended at me. Please. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, what's our response? What freedoms do we need to back off at times so that someone else can grow and flourish? Does meeting at a pub have to happen if you've got a weaker believer with you who might struggle in that regard? Does cracking a beer open at, even at your own table if you've got a weaker believer at your table have to happen? Does going to some restaurants over others need to happen? For the sake of a weaker believer that you might have at your side. Even if it's not sinful, there is a risk of offending others by what we do with our conduct. What risk do we face and how do we manage that? How aware are we of our responsibility in this area of our Christian living? If you are strong, your responsibility is to be mindful of the weak. What changes do we need to make for the sake of somebody else? my last thought, if there is the risk of sin on the part of the stronger disciple stated in this passage, and it does say that, our freedom has the potential to destroy somebody else. Our freedom can harm the body of Christ, and Paul calls that a sin against Christ. If that is the case, Is there a call, perhaps, for some of us to even do a bit of repentance in this area? It's a tough passage. There's freedom in this, but there's also great responsibility. Enjoy your freedoms in Christ. Form your own convictions. Get strong. But let's be a congregation committed to looking out for the little guy, too. They're amongst us. And at different stages of the game... We'll all become one at times. As I said, I can be the little guy sometimes. So can we all. Whenever they're around, let's look out for them. Let's leave it there. Let's stop and let the Spirit speak for one moment. So let's all bow in prayer for a moment.